a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, hello there, and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me in this exercise in wrong to think today. If you're a first-time listener, strap yourself in. We're going to be taking a little bit of a ride. I promise not to get too crazy, but I will tell you that uh, portions of this program, at least this hour of the program, are going to uh, definitely be passing through a, a zone that's uncomfortable for a lot of folks. My goal here isn't to make you mad. It's not to, uh, you know, thump my finger into your chest and tell you how wrong you are. But I'm definitely going to offer some things that could make you think. And for some people, that's going to be uncomfortable. It's normal. You know, keep a barf bag close by. I don't know. Well, hopefully it's something that will hit the right nerve with you. I do want to point out that our show is brought to you in part today by HSL Ammo. Also by Pure Light, the most amazing light bulbs that you have ever seen, helping to clean the environment. Also by Monticello College and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. So before I dive into the topics today, I just want to share something with you that popped up on my Facebook feed when I got up this morning. And uh, this is this is for March 12th of 2020. And I might be sharing a few of these over the next uh, few days just, just to illustrate the difference. Here we are a year down the road. And I can't even tell you exactly what happened on March 12th, 2020, but this is what I shared on Facebook. It was just a very short post that said, well... This has been a memorable day, to put it mildly. I can't recall such a major single-day shift like this in my lifetime. My greatest source of peace, of course, is currently found in remembering who is really in charge. So this is when the weirdness was really starting to, to kick in. And one of my friends says, well, don't leave us hanging. What's up? Everything okay? You know, I was like, ah, well, you know, uh, apparently this is when all of my favorite meetings were canceled. Now, a friend asked, so are you talking about your church's semi-annual conference? But it wasn't just that. It was conference, church, sporting events, multi-level marketing meetings, and so forth. Um, you know, it's a good thing I'm an introvert. But yeah, it was a year ago today that uh, that pretty much everybody was finding themselves um, under a kind of modified form of, of house arrest. This is when we were told we need to just, you know, stay in, don't go anywhere if you can help it. Um, and, and I'm just, I'm asking you to bring this to mind because I think at that time, a year ago, we were pretty solid on that sense of discomfort and going, this doesn't feel normal. This doesn't feel right. Now I want you to just consider, just for the sake of argument, what things look like today. You know, I see people out and about. This is the thing that struck me from a year ago. This is the one thing I do remember. Um, I was having to take my son to work. And he was working some weird hours, so 5.30 in the evening till 5.30 in the morning. Now, that's a pretty, 5.30 in the evening, that is that is rush hour squared, at least where I live. It's, it's a major, major time. And I remember how eerie it was to take him to work. We just had to drive a little ways across town. But in doing so, we had to cross I-15. And not just I-15, but one of the most major, heavily traveled corridors of I-15 in northern Utah. 
And at 5.30 in the afternoon, when it would normally be wall-to-wall traffic, not quite a parking lot, but I mean, there's no space to spare, and there were virtually no cars on the road. Very, very few. You could, you could count individual cars easily. That was eerie. And it was the same thing, being out at 5.30 in the morning to go and get my son. It did the same kind of thing. There's almost nobody around. And, of course, as, as things went on, and, and we started hearing about, you know, mandates, well, we got to close the playgrounds, we got to make sure people shouldn't be out and about, then you had to start kind of looking over your shoulder because in some places, California, I'm looking your direction, police were ticketing people, arresting people. Why? Well, because you're outside. The guy paddleboarding out on the ocean all by himself. That was my favorite. Not one, but two police boats chasing him, (laughs) finally arresting him because, uh, well, he was outside, you know, putting people in danger. Yeah, not like the uh, two uh, powerful boats speeding around him and trying to get him off of his paddleboard so that they could uh, take him into custody and stick him in jail with a lot of other people. Yeah, that one still doesn't make a lot of sense. So here we are a year later. Things uh, are still different Masks are ubiquitous and so forth. But I don't ever want to forget that that weird sense of disconnect from reality that was was going through our minds about a year ago. That was a warning sign. That's like when the hair on the back of your neck stands up and you realize something's not right. Maybe it's the person you're talking to. Something just feels a little bit off. All I'm suggesting is those are things we need to pay attention to. I know most people shrugged it off because, hey, it's, you know, it's a pandemic and we're scared and we don't want, we don't want to, you know, be part of the problem here. We want to do what's, what's right by everybody. But look at the things we've accepted as normal. We're going to be talking about a few of these things. One of the, one of the things we're going to talk about is uh, the COVID relief spending bill. I attended a meeting last night in Provo. And I got to say, this was probably the most optimistic thing that I've done in a while, um, just because I saw, oh, probably about two dozen very uh, freedom and prosperity-minded folks who had come together to work on maintaining our freedom, maintaining the, the free market, maintaining our prosperity. And it was wonderful to hear what they had to say. But one of the things that came up was, you know, the, the states that uh, are, are receiving billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars from this latest COVID relief spending bill. I think it's like $1.9 trillion total. These states are being told they can't lower their taxes. They want to use these funds? Well, here's the strings that's attached. You cannot cut taxes if you spend this money. Say what? <laughs> We're going to talk about that coming up in a few moments. Also on tap, we'll, uh, we'll talk about getting kids to do chores. Oh, yeah. Everybody struggles with it, but uh, Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org has some fantastic advice for training kids to do chores while also teaching them humility. Found this very helpful. This is information I could have used about, oh, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago. Um, Let's start, though. Let's start with something that uh, this is probably going to move some people right into the discomfort zone, but I think we should go there. It's an article from the Mises Institute, Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. Zachary Yost is the author, and it's titled, Why the State Won't Tolerate Christianity's Moral Code. Now, he points out on February 25th, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Equality Act, a bill that's touted as a step forward for civil rights in the United States. If enacted, 
The bill would add sexual orientation and gender identity to the federally protected classes that cannot be discriminated against, and it would expand where such protections are applied. Now, while expanding such protections is not necessarily widely opposed, for instance, uh, Mormon Republican Chris Stewart introduced the Fairness for All Act as an alternative bill, this Equality Act explicitly says that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 cannot be invoked. And this has tremend- generated tremendous concern that both private businesses and religious institutions will be forced to toe the current cultural line regarding sexual and gender ideology or else face discrimination suits and be sued into oblivion. In other words, the force of government is now going to be applied to how churches, private organizations, and private businesses will be forced by government power to adopt something that may violate their conscience. Organizations like the Heritage Foundation and Christianity Today have argued against the bill, on the basis of its effects on religious institutions, private schools, the legal rights of parents, even women's athletics. And while the discussion of such effects is important, the conversation has largely been missing the broader context of where this legislation and numerous other proposals like it originate. So we're coming up on the break here in a minute or so, but I I don't do this to to create more division, it's going to upset some people. And I can promise you, there are people right now who are going to be like, Brian, come on, do we really have to go there? (sighs) Strangely enough, though, I remember when the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 was passed. And I remember at that time, the the moral imperative, at least on the the part of civil rights, was for for gays and lesbians. I think at that time that's that's pretty much all all it was. It wasn't you know the alphabet soup, uh, you know the situation we have now. We're simply saying we just want to be left alone, or at the very least we want to we want to have access to the same things legally that everybody else does. This is a giant gargantuan step beyond that, and that this politicizes, and it it puts into the state's hands the power to punish people who do not hold to a certain ideological standard. Now, you may say, well, no one should be discriminating. Well, let's have that discussion the other side of the break, because all of us discriminate every single day. And when it comes to your conscience, you have to be capable of discriminating. I'll explain just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article from Zachary Yost from the uh, Mises Institute. And it explains why the state won't tolerate any of won't tolerate Christianity's moral code. This is uh, this is one of the big things that's going on. It's kind of in the background. Some people are paying attention, but a lot aren't. This is one to pay attention to because the, what's at issue here isn't just a matter of well, you know, it's wrong to discriminate against people, and it's wrong to tell people that that's wrong or I don't agree with that. That's a smokescreen. And this article explains why. Um, Zachary Yost says in his important essay, The Balance of Power in Society, sociologist Frank Tannenbaum argues that society is possessed 
by a series of irreducible institutions, perennial through time, that in effect both describe man and define the basic role he plays. Now, these perennial institutions are the state, the church, the family, and the market. These institutions have eternally striven against each other to gain dominance and become what sociologist Robert Nisbet would call the primary reference group for its members, meaning the primary way in which they understand themselves and shape their beliefs and actions. He says, at various times we can see one group coming to dominate the others, such as when the trustee form of family dominated social life in clan-based societies, or when the Roman Catholic Church exhibited tremendous power over the political affairs of Europe. Currently, we live in an epoch where the state has come to dominate social life to an extent never previously seen in human history. Now, Zachary Yost says, it's useful to analyze the Equality Act from this perspective, to truly understand its full implications. State hostility towards religion and the religious institutions through which religion is exercised is not driven solely, or in some cases even primarily, by the current secular zeitgeist. Rather, religion and religious institutions represent a major obstacle to the exercise of state control and the centralization of social power. In the Western context, Orthodox Christianity especially poses a threat to this agenda due to its adherence membership in a kingdom not of this world. So it's difficult for the eminent state to compete to be the primary reference for people who, by virtue of their, reg- their religion, are members of a transcendent order. However, he says it cannot be denied that the state has been very successful in undermining and sapping the power of religious institutions through two different means. The first is by expropriating those mundane areas of social responsibility and function that have traditionally been the purview of the church, things like charity and education. And while churches are still involved in such things, the state has supplanted them as the primary social institution that provides them. As Nisbet argues in his book, The Quest for Community, a social group cannot survive for long if its chief functional purpose is lost. And unless new institutional functions are adapted, the group's psychological influence will be minimal. No doubt the state has succeeded in centralizing so much power due to its success in poaching the historical functions of church and family. Zachary Yost says, I noted, that the, I noted above that in the Western context, the emphasis of Orthodox Christianity on transcendental concerns has proven to be a stumbling block to the state when it comes to becoming citizens' primary reference group. However, the state has also attempted to muscle into that territory as well. He says, earlier I classified the state and the church as being two different institutions with separate functions. And while this is true, especially in the West, due to the Augustinian formulation of the city of God and the earthly city, in various times in history those functions have been unified. In his work, The Political Religions, political theorist Eric Vogelin explored this idea and traced its earliest sophisticated formulation back to Amenhotep IV, a 14th century B.C. pharaoh who temporarily upended Egyptian civilization by abolishing the old deities and introducing monotheistic worship of the sun god Aton. By abolishing the old gods, references to traditional deities were eradicated, and Amenhotep changed his name so that no longer referenced the old god Ammon. Sorry, these are new names for me. The newly named Akhenaten also abolished the old priesthood as well. But what was new and innovative about Aton was that he was not just a limited god of Egypt, but in fact the god of the universe, who speaks and acts through his son, the pharaoh. 
So by obliterating the old gods like Osiris, Vogelin argued that Akhenaton abolished those aspects of the religion, the Egyptian religion, that were of the utmost importance to individuals, such as judgment and life after death, and replaced them only with a collective political religion of empire. This inability to fulfill the spiritual needs of the people, combined with the reaction of the defrocked priestly caste, led to backlash and restoration of the old order after the death of Akhenaton, when it was his turn to be obliterated from history. Funny how that works. Vogelin traces this idea of political religion through the ages, and argues that Christianity, through the work of Augustine, seriously upended the cosmos of the divinely analogous state by subordinating the political temporal sphere to the spiritual one. For hundreds of years, this understanding dominated medieval Europe. But with the advent of the Enlightenment began to crack apart under a succession of philosophers, most notably Thomas Hobbes with his conception of the Leviathan state. However, Vogelin notes that over time, as the world has secularized, the political religions have closed themselves off to claims of being the conduit for God's actions on earth and instead have come to embody eminent forces such as the order of history or the order of blood. Metaphysics and religion have been banished in favor of a vocabulary of, quote, science that is inner-worldly and therefore closed off to what Vogelin would call the ground of being through, the ground of being through which humans experience transcendent reality. I'm sorry, that's, that's almost a word salad to me, but I think I get what he's saying. In the United States, our political religion takes the form of progressivism, which is itself the product of Protestant clergy who abandoned orthodoxy in the 19th century in favor of an eminent ideology in which the U.S. would serve as the instrument to build God's kingdom on earth. In his essay, The Progressive Era and the Family, Murray Rothbard traces this movement to the rise of what he terms evangelical pietism and the way in which it altered traditional doctrine to require that man work for his own salvation by working for the salvation of the rest of the world through its imminent reformation. The song The Battle Hymn of the Republic was one product of this way of thinking. And in the words of one Vogelin sponsor, or one Vogelin scholar, rather, the author transforms Christ's redemptive mission, which is not of this world, into the world-eminent social activism of the anti-slavery movement. So rather than waiting for Christ to return when he shall establish a new heaven and a new earth, the progressive creed held that it's the job of every true Christian to redeem the fallen world and build God's kingdom on earth right now. The Civil War was understood as one such redemptive episode, complete with a martyr in the form of Abe Lincoln, as was the First World War. In his book, The War for Righteousness, historian Richard M. Gamble documents the way in which the progressive Protestant clergy led the charge to bring the U.S. into the war with hopes of redeeming the world. Like Lincoln, Woodrow Wilson was perceived as a tragic martyr for the cause and was viewed with clearly religious veneration. Now, while the American political religion began by attempting to build the kingdom of God on earth, it has, in Vogelin's terms, ended up as an inner-worldly religion that does not even attempt to maintain a connection to the transcendent order of reality, and instead justifies itself as the conduit through which the inexorable march of progress flows forth. Democracy and equality, not the return of Christ, are the new end of history. And the end result is that the state seeks to not only supplant religious institutions by usurping their mundane functions, but by usurping their spiritual functions as well. You look at any totalitarian regime that you can name. If it was totalitarian, I can promise you 
What made it totalitarian, one of the hallmarks that made it what it was, was that it would not and could not tolerate any competition in regards to moral authority. Think about that for a moment. Why did, uh, why did you know, the, the Soviet Union so ruthlessly persecute believers and force the churches underground? Why are churches and believers, you know, forced to, to, to worship in secret in China right now? Because the state can't have a higher moral authority than its own. And God is a pretty high moral authority, just in case you were wondering. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to Monticello College. There is a link in the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are the show notes for March 12th, 2021. And if you look under my sponsor links, you'll find links that take you directly to those sponsors, give you a chance to contact them. I hope you'll do business with them, or at least I hope you'll check them out. If you're wondering what Monticello College is about, click on the link. It'll take you to their website and show you uh, an education for our time. And I'm just going to leave you with that. You can sort it out and see if, if I'm exaggerating or if, if, if I'm overselling it. I don't think I am. And I know for, for some people it's, it's going to be something that will really resonate. Again, that's at the, at the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, a couple of things. I mentioned last night I attended a meeting in Provo. This was with Advocates for um, a Prosperous Community, APC. And I was very encouraged by what I saw. Look, um, Ammon Bundy has been traveling throughout my home state of Utah for the last two weeks. And he has spoken virtually every weeknight. In fact, I think he has spoken uh, Monday through Friday, every night, all across the state. And the attendance has been very, very good. Probably 300, 350 people showing up, you know, to, to these various uh, uh, get-togethers. And he's talking about organizing themselves, uh, people getting themselves organized, developing uh, mutual support systems for one another. So if someone's rights are in danger, you have friends, you have neighbors who will come to, to stand with you. By the way, this is seen as terribly subversive to those who are trying to consolidate their control over us. You can probably understand why. How dare the common person stand up for his or her rights? But that's uh, that's beside the point. Something that has been pointed out to me by folks who have been in attendance at these meetings is it's not that, uh, you know, gee, there was only five people showed up. No, they're getting hundreds of people to show up to these meetings. But you know who is not in evidence there? The people who control the resources. In other words, uh, there, there are no government officials there. There are no, uh, no industry leaders there. And, and the folks who are there, I, I don't want you, I don't want to give the impression that, boy, they're wasting their time. But, I, but something that was also pointed out is mostly what you are seeing is older citizens. And this is, this is true with my experience, too. I've, I've been to a lot of uh, meetings uh, over the last few years, and I see a lot of the, the senior citizen set you know, at, at these meetings. Good people, solid people who are sincerely trying to make a difference. What's disturbing, though, is there's a lack of young faces. 
There's a lack of um, current leadership involved in this. And, you know, you can, you can probably come up with some of the reasons why that is. Um, you know, I'm not going to lay the blame on, on either them or, you know, any one institution. You know, the media is persuaded on this. This is a waste of time. But it's kind of telling that when it comes to standing up for the free market, standing up for private property, standing up for freedom of conscience or your own personal liberties, you don't see a lot of the people who actually are in power in any way associating themselves with that. And young people, while they may be active in various causes, they don't seem to be very, uh, they don't seem to be drawn to that message as well. It's an interesting shift, and I, I don't even know for sure what it means. I will tell you, though, last night at the meeting I attended, I saw people who hold political office. I saw people who work within the political system. And uh, I also saw a lot of young faces and a few graying ones like my own <laughs> that, uh, that were there. It was very encouraging, even if it was only a couple of dozen people, but it was a pretty informal meeting. One thing that was brought up, and I thought this was, uh, was worth passing on to you, Congress is giving states far more money than they need under the latest COVID relief bill. I, I don't know if they're calling this the CARES Act or whatever. It, whatever they name it, use your Orwell filter and, and understand that typically it does exactly the opposite of, of what it's, it's purporting to do. So Congress is giving states money, but it's telling them you can't use any of this money if you try to cut taxes. This is an article from National Review by Robert Verbruggen, and he quotes Jared Walsack of the Tax Foundation, who has a fascinating post about one of the amendments that made it into the COVID relief bill. Now, this bill doles out $350 billion to state and local governments. Nearly $200 billion of that going to states alone. And there's also separately money for schools and for public transportation. Remember, this is $1.9 trillion. Where's the rest of that going? Hmm, just curious. But the states haven't seen their revenues decline anywhere near that much. In fact, some states aren't even hurting at all. So for many governments, this is a huge windfall to spend. But not so fast. The Democrats who passed the bill don't want the free money to go to something icky. And they especially don't want it to go to something really icky like tax cuts. So what they did is they put restrictions on how the money can be spent. This is the language from the bill. Quote, A state or territory shall not use the funds provided under this section or transferred pursuant to Section 603C4 to either directly or indirectly offset a reduction in the net tax revenue of such state or territory resulting from a change in law, regulation, or administrative interpretation during the covered period that reduces any tax by providing for a reduction in a a rate, a rebate, a deduction, a credit, or otherwise, or delays the imposition of any tax or tax increase, end quote. What does that all mean? Well, as Walsack notes, Not only does this bar states from explicitly and directly using the money to cut taxes, it also makes it tricky for them to cut taxes at all between now and 2024. It will still be okay for a state to cut a tax if the change is fully offset by a spending cut or other revenue increase, because in that case, the state can show it financed the tax cut without using the new money. But the situations get complicated from there. For instance, uh, states are allowed to use the money to pay public health officers who deal with the pandemic, but many of these people would have been employed even without the federal cash. 
And money is fungible, which is to say this frees up money for use elsewhere in the budget. If a state sees the resulting budget surplus and they decide a tax cut is the appropriate response, that would appear to be prohibited because the federal money indirectly financed the tax cut. Since when can the federal government tell states you can't cut taxes? I get it. You know, it's it's the carrot and the stick. You know, you want this, you want this. You got to do what I say. But I don't think there's any way to spin this as anything other. This is shocking overreach, and it's very arguably unconstitutional under Supreme Court doctrines that stop the federal government from unduly coercing the states. I like what my friend Brad had to say last night. He says, well, let's pull out the Tenth Amendment and use it for what it's intended for. In other words, to hammer the federal government back into its proper role. Coupled with other restrictions on how the aid is used, this uh, policy could even leave states wondering exactly what they can blow this money on. Fascinating development, and disturbing, too, but mostly fascinating. All right, I'm going to shift gears here. I want to I share something with you. Um, this is some really useful information. Teaching your kids how to tackle chores while teaching them humility. Annie Holmquist, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has some truly useful advice here. She says, years ago, one of my little sister's least favorite jobs was sweeping the kitchen floor. Although the kitchen was small, the chore would take her forever, and she would often sit there amidst the scattered chairs, broom in one direction, dustpan in another, particles of dust and crumbs trickling into an attempted pile. Suddenly, though, this forlorn picture was transformed. And although young, she says, my little sister soon became one of the best sweepers, I'd also venture to say that this chore became one of her favorites. What changed? Well, she says, one day our dad, likely when my sister was sitting amidst a pile of scattered dust and crumbs, came up to her and walked her through the chore, teaching her to methodically go over each floorboard. And that simple training, parent with child, side by side, doing a chore together, turned that miserable job into something that, she says, her sister, young as she was, could be quite successful at. It's the same tactic which Michaeline Duclef recommends in a recent article for NPR. Duclef is the author of uh, Hunt, Gather, Parent, a new book which looks at other cultures and examines the ways in which they raise children to be helpful, uncomplaining laborers in the journey of life. Huh, what a dream. <laughs> One of the main tricks to raising children in such a way, Duclef says, is to have them do the same chores their parent is doing at the same time. Now, such a task, while it sounds easy, is not. For getting children involved in an adult's work is both messy and time-consuming. But if parents want to take the easy way out and do everything themselves, they're programming their child to lose interest and later complain when asked to pull their share of the load around the house. And by the way, in doing so, parents aren't just training their children to be lazy at home. They're also training them to be less successful at life in general. Now, i got to hit pause here because we're coming up on the break. But when we come back, I'll share with you the rest of this article from um, Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. There is truth in what she is describing here. And I wish I had understood this back when my wife and I first started having kids. Because it's taken me until, um, oh, I don't know about now to realize there's wisdom in showing them, teaching them, yourself, this is the right way to do this job. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just so we're clear, my job is not just to report the news of the world in a crisp, upbeat fashion that to puts a smile on your face. And in addition to talking about uh, some of the political and cultural and social developments going on around us, I stumble across some pretty helpful information every so often. And this article from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org, this is a fine example. Tackling chores, teaching humility. How do you get kids to do chores? She talks about her sister being shown by her dad, walking her through the chore of sweeping the kitchen floor until that simple training turned that job into something that this girl, young as she was, could be very successful at. She became proud of the good job that she was doing. And parents who tend to take the easy way out and do it all themselves are programming their kids to lose interest and then complain when they're asked to pull their share of the load around the house. And that's not only bad for getting chores done, it also trains your kids to be less successful at life in general. Now that point is one made by Julie Lithcott-Hames in How to Raise an Adult. Citing research by family education professor Dr. Marilyn Rossman, Lithcott-Hames explains that success in later life is directly related to childhood chores. For those who were most successful, began doing chores at three to four years of age, whereas those who waited until their teen years to start doing chores were comparatively less successful. So why are children who learn to do chores early on more successful at life in general? Well, she says, I would suggest it's because chores not only teach life skills, but they teach humility as well. Family physician and author Dr. Leonard Sachs makes such a claim in his book, The Collapse of Parenting, saying that kids who are let off the hook when it comes to chores get the idea that they are too important to do menial tasks. This unintended message puffs up the bloated self-esteem that now characterizes so many American kids, Sachs explains. Annie Holmquist says, in reflecting on his comments, though, I started thinking, Our children may get too puffed up when we don't train them to do chores, but is it possible we're not training them because of our own prideful, self-absorbed mentalities? As the NPR article suggests, we neglect teaching our children these things because it takes more of our time to train them. And even then, the chores aren't always done up to our standards. We want our houses to look good to others, so dishes or vacuuming done by a child still learning the task might not make the house as presentable as we would like. Likewise, we claim we don't have time to teach our children these tasks because we're too busy with work or helping on a school committee or organizing an event at church or orchestrating the community garage sale. Well, these activities are public-facing, and they can make us feel like we're accomplishing a lot of good. But she asks, what if we adjusted our perspective, recognizing that our children are the most important things in the world? If we pause to remember that children are a parent's legacy, then by the time we spend training them, the time we spend training them, rather, while time-consuming and not always initially rewarding, perhaps even humbling, we'll eventually reap a huge return on investment as we see our children turn into responsible, successful, and hardworking adults. I don't know why, but that one jumped out at me, and it just rings as true as can be. And yes, there is a link in the show notes, which you will find at thebrianhydeshow.com. And by the way, for adults, I mean, you know, the teaching kids humility by having them do chores, that's, it does work and and it will, it'll, it'll bring humility. You know, my kids, they grumble when I send them out to clean up after the dog. They don't, they don't like that. I remember many, many, you know, times being sent out to do that as a kid myself. But when we can tie it to, this is the price for having 
our dog. This is this is the price we pay for having a lovable friend named Bodie who is so happy to see us whenever we come home. It helps to provide some perspective. And by the way, as adults, we, we can always use a little bit of humility too. Something that has uh, occurred to me from time to time as I occasionally uh, find myself working at a part-time job where I could be scrubbing toilets, wiping down gas pumps, selling beer or popcorn or whatever the case may be. It definitely helps you stay a little bit more centered on what matters versus look how great I am. It don't get much better than me. So some great food for thought there from Annie Holmquist. I'm going to, I'm going to steer into a topic that could make a few people uncomfortable, but I want to share this because there's legislation going about right now that, uh, seeks to remove qualified immunity from police. And in many ways, I think this is actually kind of a positive thing. This is, I know some people are equated with, oh, you hate cops and defund the police. And um, Let me just say that uh, there are good police officers out there. I think most of them are actually really good people. But I think the way the system is using police, it's creating problems. Police across the nation right now are concerned with legislation they feel like targets them. Well, Officers, welcome to our world. See, the nature of legislation is it always targets someone. I've got a great essay here from Ken McManigle that uh, breaks down the difference between law and legislation as well as peace officer and legislation enforcer. He says a couple of local sheriffs claim to be concerned that new legislation makes law enforcement the enemy. And he says, if so, they don't understand the nature of legislation. Legislation always makes someone the enemy. Both those harmed by the legislation, and make no mistake, all legislation harms some innocent people, and those who enforce that legislation. He says if police were limited to law enforcement, they would only be the enemy of actual bad guys. When they act as legislation enforcement instead, they've chosen the position they say they don't want to be in. Don't hurt people or take their stuff. That's the extent of real law, in which true law enforcement, which true in law, law enforcement would stick to. If someone enforces harmful legislation, which is everything else, they're on the wrong side and already the enemy. Ken McManigle says real law respects people's natural right to their body and all the products of their body. Legislation pretends that someone else has a right to control what others ingest, how much they earn, how much of their money they can keep, and what they can do with their property. No one has a right to cross the line drawn above. Majority opinion or legislation can't create such a right. Enforcing such legislation or otherwise violating natural human rights is what makes someone the enemy, no matter how they excuse their behavior. It's no different than someone who was drunk claiming this is why they aren't responsible for the accident they caused. Actual criminals violate real law while also violating legislation. Fake criminals only violate legislation. It's the difference between mala and say, actually wrong because it violates others, and mala prohibitum, wrong just because politicians say so. His point is, if law enforcement existed, this is what it would be limited to. Just the mala and say laws, but there's only legislation enforcement, mostly chasing those who've broken worthless legislation based on nothing more than politicians' opinions. Maybe they would claim this also coddles real criminals, but it doesn't. Real law enforcement would not protect actual criminals from their intended victims by enforcing legislation. They would do more to fight actual crime than posting a cop at every intersection would, which in his case would be turning New Mexico into a police state. 
Ken McManigal says it seems legislation enforcers care most about legislation when it hurts them more than it hurts other people. They'll try to frame it as a danger to the public, too, but he says, I'm not buying it. I can't fault them for a natural human desire to protect their position, though. Now, hopefully, by sharing that, you you haven't come away with the idea, okay, got it, Brian, hate cops, because that's not at all what what I'm suggesting here. There are some police officers who I think you you really would want this to be the kind of person out there addressing people who are a legitimate threat to the peace and safety of society. And it's been my privilege to know quite a few of these guys and gals over the years. There are also a lot of officers out there who are, I think they they become police officers to to make a difference, to, to have a positive impact on their community. But at some point they realize that there's a decision that has to be made. And depending on which agency they're working for, um, some agencies are very down-to-earth and, and take more of a peace officer approach. Others um, have kind of an elitist mindset. They like to flex and like to, you know, uh, they like to be just a little cut above. We are made from finer clay than the rest of you. And they go around and they enforce every little tiny thing that they can using that uh, broken windows theory that Rudy Giuliani allegedly used to clean up New York City. In other words, you you punish people ruthlessly for the smallest thing. You dropped a gum wrapper, you know, here's your ticket, and, you know, if we don't take you to jail, you're lucky. They sweat the small stuff with the idea that this will keep people from doing the big stuff. But in reality, what it does is it draws this, this huge distinction between the public and the police, and the police start to look more predatory even to average members of the public. So when the cops are going around looking to write tickets for any reason whatsoever, and I know there are agencies will say, we have no quotas, but if they're pressuring their individual officers, get out there and find reasons to write people up, you've got a problem. So understanding the difference between mala in say and mala prohibita could prevent a lot of mischief. Recognizing the difference between laws and legislation, laws are things that are proven. Things that actually contribute to the good of society. Legislation? That's politicians' words on paper. By the way, you can check out this essay in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.